Good singing indeed this morning. How many were out at the Bluegrass Olympics yesterday? Raise your hand. Man, it was fun. It was very, very well planned, very well organized, uh, very enjoyable to those that were able to be there. And uh, I wanted to say thank you to many of you who were part of Pam's planning crew. Certainly, I say a thank you this morning to Pam and to Scott for all of their efforts in getting all of that ready. Um, but each of you that was here and participated, it was really just a fun day, a good day of fellowship, a good day to spend together, and uh, enjoyment all the way around. Second thing before we preach this morning, I, I think I should at least address it. I did in the early hour, and I've answered many of your questions. Those that were here on Wednesday night know that I was an unexcused absence, as they say in school. Um, I went throughout the day on a couple different home visits, and I skipped lunch and did not drink enough water. And in the afternoon when Jessica and I went to the gym, it was leg day. Anyway, uh, I went to the gym with her, and when I came back, I was malnourished, malnutritioned, whatever the right word is, and came into the house and blacked out in the kitchen, fell down, and called EMS. So I'm laughing because uh, it's not funny. It was at that moment kind of like, ooh, what's going on? Um, had a few little autonomic responses that the EMS didn't like, so they're going to make me do some tests, but I appreciate you excusing my unexcused absence on Wednesday night. Uh, Edward did a fine job preaching. Uh, Jessica dialed the phone, and I was laying on the floor, and I said, hey, uh, you mind preaching tonight? And he said, sure, everything okay? I'm like, uh, we'll find out in just a few minutes. So uh, we also learned it took eight minutes for the emergency squad to get to our house out in the country, so maybe we should live closer into town, I don't know. Uh, but uh, the Lord took care of us. I am fine. I've been to see my doctor on Friday. He scheduled a whole host of tests that I get to go through now. And all I learned from it is at 47 years of age, I'm not 27 anymore. In other words, the things that I used to do, I can't do anymore, right? Uh, that's all I've ta- basically taken away from it. But uh, I appreciate very much many of you that were aware. Some of you say, oh, it's the first I've heard of it. I appreciate your prayers in post. Uh, for whatever it is, I, I honestly think it was I didn't drink enough water, I didn't eat enough food, and I decided to crash to the floor in a heap for my boys. It was odd because on Tuesday night we went to Trail Life with my youngest son. We do the Trail Life, and it was on first aid. So, Brother Ken Al, you were there with Trail Life. Uh, he does the Trail Life with, with Christian. Uh, they taught them that night to look for all the signs of heart attack and stroke. And so Luke runs out and he goes, your face is fine. And I'm like, oh, good. Oh, my face is fine. Hallelujah. My hands are not, but my face is fine as I laid in the floor. And uh, Jessica was checking my pulse. You're not having a heart attack. And so then they all just went back to their rooms and said, okay, we'll wait till the EMS gets here. But uh, I was fine. It, 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 I seemed fine. Everybody asked me, do you feel okay? I feel fine. Truth be told, I felt fine right until I hit the floor, and I felt fine generally an hour after I hit the floor, but until they figure out and tell me what was wrong with me, I do appreciate you praying for me. Well, here we are in Exodus chapter 15. If you take your Bibles and turn there with me this morning, we're continuing in our series, Walking with God, and particularly Moses and his walk with God. We dealt with, over the last four services or messages in this series, Moses' personal walk with God. And now we're going to move into the public walk. In other words, the things that flowed out of the personal deliverance that Moses himself received from Almighty God. Uh, This morning, we're going to look at the deliverance that comes for us from genuine problems in life. Anybody got any problems in here this morning? 
Well, two of us do. The rest of you are liars, and that's your main problem. We all have problems. We all have physical needs. We all have spiritual needs. We all have emotional needs. We all have problems. And if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you would say, well, I thought I would never have another problem in life. And the answer is, welcome to the Christian walk. There's genuine problems. How do we deal with these genuine problems? How do we address them? Well, thankfully, as we'll see this morning in the preaching of the Word of God, immediately after Moses sings this wonderful song of the redeemed, by the way, a song and a psalm that will be sung throughout eternity, the book of Revelation tells us. This song of Moses... Immediately after that, problems come. Well, let's read one verse, we'll pray, and then we'll jump into the preaching this morning. The Bible says in Exodus 15 and verse 2, The Lord is my strength and song, and He is become my salvation. He is my God. Notice the next statement. And I will prepare Him an habitation, my Father's God, and I will exalt Him. Father, help us this morning as we now turn to the Word of God. Help us to see the truth, and in seeing it, may we do it. May we hear and do. This morning, Lord, we're going to see that Israel has some real problems. But you, in your benevolence, gave great provision, and it provides for us wonderful promises. Bless all that is said and all that is done in this hour. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Moses has sung a hymn. He's praising God for his salvation in Exodus 15. Immediately after singing that song, problems start piling up. That's just the way life goes for us sometimes. Everywhere we turn in this life, there seems to be problems. Being a Christian is no different. Whether it was Israel in Egypt or Israel in the wilderness or Israel even to the time that they arrived in the promised land, they always had to face problems and overcome them through God's help. Some were self-inflicted problems. Some were divinely appointed problems. No matter how the problems came, they had to be faced and they had to be overcome. What will you do then this morning when you are faced with problems in your Christian life? Mankind's problems revolve around our being. I believe we are a triune being, body, soul, and spirit. We have physical problems, we have spiritual problems, and we have emotional problems. Many times that I go and pray with folks in the hospital, or I see them in their home after a serious incident, or a health scare, or maybe a loss of a loved one, I will ask them, how can I pray for you? And there's three ways in which I can pray as your pastor. That is for your physical needs, your emotional needs, and your spiritual needs. We find then that deliverance comes in the passages of Exodus 15, 16, and 17, that it comes from the genuine problems through God's provision. Today's message will be inverse. I know many of you aren't pastors. Some of you were pastors in the, in the ages or days gone by. The message is going to be inverse, and I'm telling you that only because I don't want you to think when I get through point number one and point number two, which are usually the longest, that, man, we're going to be done in 15 minutes this morning. The first two points today will be very brief because we will look at Israel's problems and God's provision, but then we will move to see what God promises to us. And there's a great application in it for this morning for each of us how we are delivered from the genuine problems that we face 
in this life. So we begin first in our outlines this morning with Israel's problems. This morning we are presented in chapters 15, 16, and 17 with three problems that God solves in delivering Israel. He also solves them in our lives as well. The first problem that Israel faces, letter A, is there is no life-giving source. Look in chapter 15 and verse 22, and we begin our reading there. The Bible says, So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out in the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days into the wilderness and found what? No water. That's a problem. Water is the source of life. If you don't have water, you don't last very long. The Bible keeps going, and when they came to Marah, note that name, we'll come back to it later in the preaching today, they could not drink of the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Marah. And the people murmured against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried unto the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, which, when he had cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made for them a statute and an ordinance, and there he proved them and said, If thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, and wilt do that which is right in his sight, and wilt give ear to his commandment and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of these diseases upon thee which I have brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. Notice verse 27. And they came to Elam, where were twelve wells of water. How many tribes of Israel were there? Twelve. And three score and ten palms. If you don't know Bible reading, three score is, a score is 20, three score is 60, plus 10 is 70. 70 is a type or a picture of complete judgment that is rendered, seven being the number of completion, ten being the number of judgment. And so God brings them from the bitter waters of Mara to Elam, where there is complete divine judgment, and it is provision for all 12 tribes. What a picture. Go to chapter 17 and verse 1. We're going to see it's not just the bitter waters of Marah, but there is the barrenness of water at Meribah, Masa Meribah, as Moses is going to call it. In chapter 17 and verse number 1, the Bible says, And all the congregation of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin after their journeys according to the commandment of the Lord and pitched in Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Again, same problem, no life-giving source. Wherefore the people did chide with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said unto them, Why chide ye with me? Wherefore do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water. And the people murmured against Moses and said, Wherefore is this that thou hast brought us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? And Moses cried unto the Lord saying, What shall I do unto these people? They be almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go on before the people, take with thee the elders of Israel and thy rod. By the way, that is the standard of the word of God. Wherewith thou smotest the river or the Red Sea, take in thine hand and go. Behold, I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb. And thou shalt smite the rock and there shall come out water of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah. He gave it a twin name, if you will, and we'll talk about that later in the message. Because of Israel and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? One last passage, go over to the book of Numbers and chapter 20. Second generation of Israelites comes to a very similar location 
Meribah, but this time it's Meribah of Kadesh, near Kadesh Barnea. And in Meribah of Kadesh Barnea, the second generation, the first generation, except for Joshua and Caleb, have effectively all died out except for Moses. And this second generation is now living and leading and longing and looking for the promised land. And notice what they say, beginning in verse number three. And the people chode with Moses. By the way, parents, don't be surprised when your kids become just like you. Saying, would God that we had died when our brethren died before the Lord? Why have he brought up the congregation of the Lord into this wilderness, that we and our cattle should die there? And wherefore have ye made us to come up out of Egypt to bring us into this evil place? It is no place of seed or of figs or of vines or of pomegranates. In essence, what they're saying is it's a place where no life is. Neither is there any what? Water to drink. What was Israel's problem? There was no water. Now I want to show you a map and then I want to show you some pictures this morning so that we have a little context of the environment. Look at the map. They begin in Ramses, Goshen, an area at the delta of the Nile River as it dumps into the Mediterranean Sea. And number one, circle dot number one on the left side of the screen there is effectively where they began in slavery. And they moved down to Succoth, from Succoth to Pi-Hi-Haroth, which is where we found them at the end of cha- or beginning of chapter 14. And at the end of chapter 14, they've crossed over what is that portion of the Red Sea. And number four on the map is Mara. That's where we picked up our reading in chapter 15 and verse 22. And number five, or circle dot number five, is Elam, the place of the palms. And if you keep going down, six, seven, eight, is the rest of their journeys as they continue, continue on. In other words, what we look at in this is that there was movement to where they were. But make no mistake, when they move into the Sinai Peninsula, they move away from lush greenness and supply to a place of great want. Look at these pictures, if you will, of what it looks like in Sinai. I mean, if you're walking around with a million plus people, Sinai's not pleasant. My favorite is this next picture. I don't know if any of the guys in the march had Adidas pants like the guy on the camel. But the point is, is this is what it looks like there. This is a picture from the Sinai Desert. Would you be worried about water? I'd be worried about water. Look at the next picture. It gets worse. Sometimes we chide with Israel for their chiding with Moses, and we need to set ourselves in the context. It is not lush, green, central Kentucky. It is the backside of the desert, as we might say. Look at the next picture. This is what they believe is Mount Sinai. We don't know if it's Mount Sinai, but the point is, it looks pretty barren. It looks pretty bleak. It looks pretty hopeless. It certainly looks very void of life. And so as Israel comes to this place, they begin to look at and realize there is no life here. How are we going to survive? Oh, we've been liberated. We've been freed. We've been put in this place. But where is life going to come from? And as a Baptist preacher, I want to go ahead and preach the final point. But I'm going to wait. If you'll stay with me, we'll get to the final point. The second problem that they face this morning is a lack of supply. Look in chapter 16 and verse number 1. 
In Exodus 16, if you turn back there and look in verse number 1, the Bible says, And they took their journey from Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came into the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month. They are now 30 days removed from the Passover, Abib, which was given to us at the beginning of Exodus chapter 12. 30 days, they have now been on the march, they have now been on the move, they have now been hoping and trusting in only what they took with them. What did they take with them? Unleavened cakes. Would you last 30 days on unleavened cakes? Would you make it 300 miles from Egypt up to, if you went the direct straight line, up to there? Would you make it all the way up there? He keeps reading, or we keep reading and we keep going. And the whole congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses, verse 2, and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said unto them, Would to God we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the flesh pots, when we did eat bread to the full. In other words, we weren't portioned or rationed. We weren't trying to hold back and survive. For ye have brought us forth into this wilderness to do what? Kill this whole assembly with hunger. In other words, they did not have the necessary supply that they needed. These people had left with just their unleavened cakes. What would those old cakes from that old life actually do to sustain them through this journey? They're now 30 days out from the Passover, probably 100 miles into their journey with a few cakes and their livestock, very little water. God told them to go and they obeyed. They went. The truth was that there was really no amount of supply that they could have packed, especially knowing that they would now be in the wilderness for 40 years. That we know, they didn't know that, but there's no amount of supply that you can pack that supplies for 40 years of wandering. In other words, they recognized what their problem was, that they lacked supply. The third problem was this, letter C, there was a looming struggle that was waiting for them where we read of the second water incident, not of the bitter water, but of the barren water, the lack of water in chapter 17. If you begin reading in verse number 8, you see the looming struggle with the fight and the foe that was going to always be with them. Pick up the reading in chapter 17 in verse 8. And again, I'm setting the scene for the whole of the message, but we need to note what their actual problems were. Verse number 8, the Bible says, Then came Amalek. Oh, that's a, that's a wonderful name to study. Amalek, by the way, in the Old Testament, was a constant thorn in their side. The Amalekites were very hard to kill off, as we would read if we wanted to study. So too were the Philistines, so too were the Moabites, so too were the Canaanites, so too were many that inhabited that land. They all are a type or representation of areas or our flesh that we fight, our internal, natural man. And what Amalek here is, is a real enemy, a real foe, a real struggle that they were going to have to fight, certainly they were going to have to face. Verse number nine, Moses said unto Joshua, choose out men. Go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses had said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses and Aaron and Hur went up, on the top, up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass when Moses held up his hands that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hands, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy and they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat thereon and Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, the one on the one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua, it says in verse 13, discomfited Amalek. That means he won. 
and his people with the edge of the sword. And the Lord said unto Moses, Write this for a memorial in a, in a book, and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua, for I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of, of it Jehovah Nisse, which means God is my banner, God is my flag bearer, God is my motivation, my standard that I follow. Notice verse 16, for he said, because the Lord hath sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from what? Oh man, this is a looming struggle that's going to go on and on and on. It isn't until Haman with Queen Esther that the sons of Agag and the Amalekites are ultimately and and finally killed in 500 B.C. That is almost a thousand years after God says this. Think about that. God's got a very long timeline. We have just these 70 or so years. The problem was that that the struggles would loom on the horizon within... excuse me, within the life that God had given to them. Israel's problems in each instance that we've read this morning give way to God's provisions, number two. So if we note the problem, there was no life-giving source, there was a lack of supply, and there was going to be a looming fight or struggle that they were going to have to engage in their whole life long, then we have to at least note how God provided for each of them. How did God answer their physical problem, their very real problems? Because, friend, in our third point, it's going to make absolute sense to us how we can trust God as we walk with Him as well. Well, Moses and Israel found out that God was the only one who could provide for them. Notice, please, that God first provided for them in supplying their water. Some of you probably could already figure out what these first points are in Roman numeral 1 and 2. But God comes and supplies their water. To supply means to satisfy or to give what is necessary through the provision and abundance of another. God supplies everything that Israel needs. What a hope. What a trust. What a truth. What a a comfort that should be. Certainly to them and for us. Moses did not need to worry about supplying for their needs. Every time they come and complain to him, he always goes and says to God, Why are they complaining to me? I didn't bring you out here. I didn't do this. I can't give this to you. I wonder if Moses in his own mind was thinking as well. Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know how there's going to be a supply for your water. I don't know who's going to make the waters of Mara sweet. I don't know who's going to make them potable water or drinkable water. I don't know where it's going to come from in this barren place of Meribah. But I'm going to go and talk to the one who has brought us out here, who's promised to give us life. And God supplies the water. That takes a lot of pressure off of the leader, by the way, to know that God will supply for their needs. The second thing we must note under God's provision is that he satisfies their hunger. Again, I told you we're going to move rapidly through these so I can spend more time in the third point. So you can't fall asleep then. That's the deal. Well, how does he provide for them in... Their hunger. How does he satisfy their need? In chapter 16, and it's a lengthy passage in chapter 16, it is the explanation in the giving of manna. We'll not read all of the passages on it, but simply to say, God gives them manna from heaven. If we were, we could look in verse 4 of chapter 16. It says, Then the Lord said unto Moses, Behold, I will rain bread 
from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a certain rate every day that I may prove them whether they will walk in my law. Oh, my goodness. What a great truth this is going to teach us. Simply put here, God provides manna. What is manna? Some of you Bible nerds just laughed with me. The rest of you just stared at me. Do you know what manna means in the Hebrew? What is it? Yes, it means, what is it? And so when I said, what is manna, I literally said, manna is manna. Some of you are now still just trying to dawn on it. It's early. I understand that. Stay with me. You'll catch up. Here's the point. They didn't know what it was. Have you ever had bread from heaven? Neither have I. Neither had they. Well, what do we know about its physical properties of what God provided for them? The answer is, we're told in chapter 16 and verse 31, if you look there, that it was, at the last half of the verse, it was like coriander seed, okay? It was white, okay? And the taste of it was like wafers, so it had kind of a bit of a crunch to it, it seems. That's what a wafer would have. Made with honey, so it had a bit of a crunch, but a goo, or a crunch with a sweetness. That doesn't seem very descript, except for that's all we get. Numbers chapter 11 and verse 7 uh, 7 tells us that manna had a color, but the color of manna was bdellium. Anybody have any bdellium on this morning? No? Well, if you're wearing like a pearly white, then the answer is yes, you do. That's essentially the color of a bdellium, if we understand it correctly. It also has the texture of it in bdellium. It has the idea of a gum or a resin. Something that might be a little um, spongy, if you will. So it was able to be crunched like a wafer, but it had kind of a softness to it as well. You say, how did it do that? And the answer is only God does that. It's the bread of heaven. In Psalm 78, verses 24 and 25, it's the only other description we have of any part of what manna was. In verse 24 of Psalm 78, it tells us that manna was the grain or corn that came from heaven. It was literally the kernels of heaven. In verse 25 of Psalm 78, it's called the bread of angels. So your guess as to what it is, is as good as my guess as to what it is. All we know is what it is. Manna. The miracle of manna ceased after they entered into the promised land, where the bread supply was replaced with milk and honey within the land that God would provide. The third thing that God provides for them is, letter C, a standard for their battle, a way in which they should engage in the fight. That's the third thing that God provides to solve their three known problems when they come out of Egypt, when they come out of the world, when they come into this new life that God has for them. He says, I will give you a a solution to life. I will give you a solution to supply every day. And I will give you a standard to fight your battles, Israel. The Bible told us if we, when we read in chapter 17 that God's name was Jehovah Nisei. It means God or Jehovah is my banner. A banner is just a standard or a flag. There are those in our country and in our military that understand that when they go to serve, they are serving our constitution and our flag. We understand what this standard means. And what God does for Israel is in the fight against Amalek, he gives them the way to victory in every battle for them in the physical realm. 
For them, if they would trust God, follow his program, accomplish his plan in the process, they would always be victorious. And until Judah fell in the 500 BCs, until Judah was finally and totally eradicated, every time Israel won a battle, they followed this exact plan. Whatever God says, let's go do that. Every time they lost and did not follow God's standard, it was because, they, or every time they lost, it's because they didn't follow God's standard. Excuse me. The point is, God gives the provision, the simple provision. I will give you the water, I will give you the daily supply, and I will fight your battles. Friends, I think you can see, number three, why our promises are so great. Because now we're going to make the application to us today. If these three are true in the problems, they are true in our spiritual walk as well. And if God's three provisions are true, they are true in our spiritual walk with Him as well. That's why this series, Walking with God, we're studying these men of old. We're studying their lives because how God worked in their lives, He wants to work in your life in the very same way. So what are the promises that we have from these deliverances of Israel? What can we learn spiritually of the physical solutions that God provides? In our walk with God, what can we learn from Moses' walk that he had to learn at each of these stops? Letter A, first, Jesus satiates our thirst. Now, how many of you use that word this week? None of you? You need to get a word of the day calendar on your desk and you can tear it off and you might come across satiate at some point. Do you know what satiate means? It just means to fully satisfy. When you're sick and you're a kid and your mom takes the tussin and puts it in the little cup, you hope that mom only puts the Robitussin up to maybe like a little bit close to the line, but not all the way up to the line. As a kid, when your mom makes lemonade, and you come in and get that glass of lemonade, you want mom to fill that glass all the way to the top until barely you pick it up and it's going to flow over. That is more the definition of satiate. It's the idea of filling all the way to the brim, having everything that you could possibly need. And what we learn and what we must understand in the story of their problems, it shows us the picture of what Jesus does for us in the new life we have in Jesus Christ. He fills our life to the brim with goodness. He gives us all of himself, all of his life. The three locations, Mara, Masa, and Meribah, give us a lot of spiritual context as to what God would have us learn with our walk with him. To the satiating or the satisfying to the fullness of our souls. The names Mara, Masa, and Meribah from our readings in Exodus 15, 17 and Numbers chapter 20 tell us of the bleakness of the human soul. Mara literally means bitter. Masa means test or try God. To tempt God in His goodness. To try His patience. Meribah means to strive or have contention. In other words, every time there was no life, every time there was no water, it's because they were bitter and they were barren. They were looking for what they did not have in themselves. And may I say to you in your Christian life, if you are bitter and if you are barren, it's because you've forgotten the source of life, Jesus Christ. It's that simple. We read there in chapter 15 in verses 22 to 27 that the solution to the bitter water was what? 
Take a tree. This is the most random thing you can read in the Bible. Perhaps the only more random is the six-fingered man. Take a tree, take it down to the water, and drop it in. I have no idea what alchemy, <laughs> what sort of metallurgy or chemical reaction. I have no idea what science or pseudoscience took place. But I know this, that when Moses got the tree all the way down to the side of the water, and they went, one, two, I wonder what they were thinking. Is this going to work? Is it really going to work to apply this tree to this water and splash in it went? I wonder who the first guy was that just took his cup and went, hmm, that's pretty good water. They wanted to make sure that David or Yosef didn't die. The water had become sweet. It was potable. It was drinkable. It was useful to them. May I say to you, there's many people who get saved from a life of wickedness, a life of regrets, and a life of sorrows. And there's a whole lot of things that happen to us in this Christian life that we sorrow over and we become bitter in. And the only solution is to go back to the life-giving source, the cross of Jesus Christ, take that old rugged tree, and apply it to that situation. It's the only way, only way to make that which is bitter, better. It's the only possible way. Jesus speaks to these two different types, the bitter and the barren water, in the New Testament. In fact, in the Gospel of John specifically, take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 4. I'll put it on the screen, but I really would like for you to look at it with me. Go to the New Testament and look at John chapter number 4. I promised you I would take longer on these final points, so hang with me. You're doing great. You're doing wonderful this morning. Concerning the bitter waters, the anger that fills us sometimes, the hurts that have been done to us, Jesus comes to a woman in John chapter 4, and if you know the Bible, you already know what I'm going to be talking about, because we find in this the application of Jesus Christ and what He did on Calvary's tree, what He was going to do on Calvary from this point, speaking to this woman, but what He would do on Calvary would make the bitterness of this woman much better. We pick up, and it's a long reading, but beginning in verse number 5, Then cometh he to the city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There cometh the woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away into the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman... Of Samaria unto him, how is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? It wasn't just the male-female appropriateness of their culture in that day conversation, but it was the Jew to Samarian. Both of them were inappropriate or things that were out of custom, if you will. For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. Not bitter water, sweet, healthy, life-giving water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence, thou, whence then hast thou that living water? She's very sarcastic. By the way, you want to know a good sign that you're pretty bitter in life? You're sarcastic about everything. 
I think it's a genuine question on her part, but she's asking, her, hey, where are you going to draw it up from, bud? You don't even have a bucket with you. You don't have anything to draw from the well. Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us this well and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? Jesus could have said yes. <laughs> but notice what he says in verse 13. Jesus answered and said unto her, whosoever, answered her, whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. I don't ever have to come back unto this well. The bitterness of the life that she had lived is dripping from this woman. Her pool is not drinkable. <laughs> Jesus saith unto her, He's going to answer her in her own kind. All right, you want to be this way? Go call thy husband and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said. Hey, good answer. I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband, you immoral harlot. Now, he didn't add that part, but his point is clear. In that thou saidst truly. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I, I perceive that thou art a prophet. She's starting to have her waters change. <laughs> she's starting to realize that she's confronted someone that's greater than she is. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet in Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. The woman saith, unto him, I know that the Messiah is cometh, which is called Christ. When he has come, he will tell us all things. Here is the count of three and the log going in. Jesus saith unto her, splash. <laughs> I that speak unto thee am he. Friends, that is how water that is bitter becomes better. I don't know what has happened in your life, but all you have to remember is that the source of life is Jesus Christ himself. And in salvation, in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, whatever problem of life-giving source, whatever bitterness, whatever barrenness that you have is solved in the person of Jesus Christ. This woman worships, this woman's worship, excuse me, was of herself. She knew everything, but in reality, she knew nothing. Everything that she had tried had left her empty and dry, thirsting for more and never having a supply in life that satisfied her. Then she meets Jesus. She finds pure and living water. For you and I, it means taking the tree of Calvary and casting it into the waters of our life, accepting Him for what He's done for us. We worship nothing else. We find hope in nothing else. But the simple work of Christ on Calvary, that is the bitter water turned sweet. Those are the 70 palms of Elam from the end of Exodus 15. The second statement that Jesus makes is similar to the rock that is twice spoken of 
in the Exodus, both in Exodus 17 and Numbers 20. Paul says that that rock that followed them in the wilderness was Christ in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 4. Jesus says the same truth about him being the living waters in John chapter number 7. Now, you need to know John 7. The disciples ask him if they can go up to the great feast. And on the last day of the great feast, they would take cisterns of water and they would turn them over on the last day of the feast. And the water would cascade down the temple steps so as to create a waterfall. It is at that moment that we pick up the reading in chapter 7 and verse 37. Jesus has not gone with the disciples who the Bible says went there in secret, but he himself goes. And as soon as those cisterns are turned over, he steps out and says what he says in John 7 and verse 37. The waters are cascading down. It says in the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried saying, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Verse 39 says, But this spake he of his spirit, which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. He had not died, been buried, and rose again. Here's the point. In the wilderness... Moses is told first to strike the rock because Jesus Christ must be stricken and smitten of men. He is the one that had to bleed and die. The second time, what does Moses do if you know the story? He is told by Almighty God, speak to the rock. And Moses, because he's indignant towards the people, goes and strikes the rock. Nothing happens. He strikes the rock a second time. And finally, God lets the water come out. But because of that, Moses cannot go into the promised land. Christ was stricken for us so that water could flow. But after that first striking, all we must do in this Christian life that we have is speak to Him for nourishment once again so that His Holy Spirit can freely flow into our lives. The second thing that we find that is a promise to us is that Jesus supplies our needs. In John chapter 6, Jesus, after feeding the 5,000, teaches a lesson on just what He is for those who believe on Him. Take your Bibles and turn over to John chapter number 6. He's fed the 5,000, and in feeding the 5,000, people begin to ask Him about the bread that He's given to them and the supply. In the middle of the passage, beginning in verse 27, Jesus says, Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for the meat which endureth unto everlasting life. In other words, pursue the supply that is eternal, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. For him hath God the Father sealed. Then said they unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Here's the rabbis. Here's the priests. Here's the divine order of the religious crowd trying to figure out how to do God's work instead of just having a relationship with Him. Verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe on Him whom He hath sent. It seems like a pretty easy work, doesn't it? (laughs) Salvation's easy. They said therefore unto Him, What sign showest thou them that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou work? Our fathers did eat manna in the desert. Well, here's our passage from this morning, isn't it? 
As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore then give us this bread. Oh, if you can do that like they did in the, in the wilderness, I want you to do that for me. And Jesus says, I will. No problem. Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. It's an abundant and endless supply. But I said unto you, that ye also have seen me and believe not. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at that last day. Skip down to verse 47. He goes through a further explanation of what that day would be like, the murmuring against him. But here's what he concludes in verse 47. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are what? Dead. God solved their physical problem, but for you and I, he solved our eternal problem. He has solved our spiritual problem, the need of our soul. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and what? Not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Jesus equates his work in coming to earth to that of manna's purpose in physically sustaining Israel in the wilderness. Manna foreshadowed Christ's work. Sadly, the crowd in John 6 surrounding Jesus could not get their minds off the physical and think of the eternal. They were more concerned with the condition of their stomachs, one author said, than the condition of their soul. The bread of life, my friend, is the daily provisions that God gives to us in His Word and through His Word. It is the supply that sustains our spiritual minds day by day. It is no different than manna. You come to this book, the bread of life, the living Word of God, and you take bite after bite after bite, day after day after day, and you will live. You have an endless supply in this book because of that God. You can't read for today and say it's enough for tomorrow. What happened to the manna? Turned to worms. Well, now, I mean, I came to church today. Bless God, I'm good for the week. I'll see you next week, preacher. Good for you. I'll see you next week, too. I'm glad you're here. But, boy, you're starving yourself. The promise that God gives to us is, I'll give you manna every day. All you got to do is open it and eat. And yet we look around and see emaciated Christian after emaciated Christian lost in the wilderness and complaining about their problems. And God says, I solved it. All you have to do is come and eat. And yet it seems like from a pastoral position, I stand here week after week after week, and I don't know what your daily reading is. I hope it's good. But it seems like I stand here week after week begging you, please eat. I feel like a parent of a newborn. Please eat, or maybe a toddler, a newborn will eat. Those toddlers, they get to the peas and the strained carrots, no naked. <laughs> Spit it back out. That's, that's a lot of Christians. This is your manna. This is your provision. 
Not your pastor. Moses didn't do it. Jesus just said Moses didn't make that happen. God gives you all that pertains to life and godliness in this book. And he says, I'm going to make it available to you every day. You have sufficient for today. The final thing that we find as a promise to us is that letter C, Jesus shares his strength. The Philistines, the Amalekites, the Moabites, the Canaanites are all a type of the flesh that constantly attack us. And occasionally they defeat us. The physical story of victory with Jehovah being their banner, their standard, their motivator for victory shows us a pattern for victory over our flesh as well. Joshua is a type, is a picture of Jesus out on that battlefield. He's leading the fight. And if you remember the passage from chapter 17 and verse 8, where the Bible goes on and tells us that Joshua is down there. He discomfited Amalek with the edge of the sword. Jesus uses this book to defeat your flesh. If you're not in this book, you're not going to have a chance to defeat the flesh. But when you come to church and the pastor, yeah, oh man, he got me. <laughs> he poked me. Yeah, that's the sword. It's the Lord Jesus Christ through his Holy Spirit, hopefully through the messenger of God in this place, saying, kick, kick. we might turn it a little bit. <laughs> oh man, that hurts. Yeah, what's a Mal- that's an Amalekite dying. <laughs> that's a Philistine biting the dust. And so my job is to remind you of what Jesus wants to do for you. What was Moses left to do? Go up on a hillside. Sit down. Raise your hands up in the air. And that's all you got to do. I mean, think about that picture. I mean, look, look at that picture. I guess I could do that, but we would be accused of being Pentecostal. But if we all just put our hands up in the air, what, what does it look like? I give up. There's nothing I can do in this fight. God, this is up to you. The Bible says that he took that rod and he held it up in the air. And every time he held that rod up in the air, what did they do? They discomfited. They won. But every time it came down, the flesh won. The rod is the word of God. And as it's held up in our life through prayer and supplication, Jesus Christ will take his sword and discomfort our flesh on the battlefield of life. The problem is not a lot of Christians want to do that anymore. Jesus will share his strength with us. Oh, there's passages if we had the time this morning to look at in Mark chapter 14 and John chapter 8. In Mark 14, we'll not take the time to turn or look this morning, beginning in verse 32, Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and he prays. I think that was one of the best pictures of what Joshua and Moses in the story of the Amalekites or that battle from Exodus 17 shows us. Jesus is actually going to war with the flesh. He goes to pray. What does he do? He takes three guys with him. And what are those three guys supposed to do? Pray. Just like Moses, Aaron, and her. They can't. They fall asleep. But Jesus, in the process, says to them, the spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. It's a picture of the war that you're in. The looming struggle that is yours and mine. He says to pray. The other thing that we find is the sword is the word of God and the rod is the word of God. In John chapter 8 and verse 30 through 32, he talks about if we do what he says, then we will be free indeed. Our strength in this life, my friend, is Jesus. He will show himself strong against the world, 
against our flesh and and the devil. But we must be still and know that he is God. We cannot fill our lives up with all kinds of worldliness, with all kinds of fleshly living, and then say, okay, God, you do the work. He says, no, you get away, you be still, you ask for my help, and I'll help you. That's the battle plan. That's the promise. In closing this morning, Moses' public deliverance begins with three distinct problems that Israel faced. And every time a problem came up, God immediately steps in to provide a solution to the problem. He wants to do the same in your life. Israel found no life-giving source, yet God provided water for them in both the bitterness of Marah and the barrenness of Meribah. He does the same for us as the well of water springing up within us to everlasting life. Oh, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior this morning, may I introduce you to Him. He is a drink of cool water in a dry and thirsty land. Israel found no supply of food, yet God provided manna to sustain them day by day. He does the same for us as the bread of life in the book of life if we will just open it in our life. He will give us all the provisions necessary for the day. Israel fought and struggled with foe after foe as they journeyed to and even into the promised land. Yet God always provided himself as the standard for victory. You come to me. You hide yourself in me. You trust in me and not yourself and we'll win. This morning your problems do not end when you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. I wish they did. However, trusting Jesus... You now have the creator God of the universe as your problem solver. That's pretty good news. The one on whom you can lean and the one to whom you can turn for the answers of every problem in your life. Father, help us, I pray, as we